Hi, welcome to the Neshamas podcast. We at Neshamas are on a mission to promote mental and emotional health within our community. Among the many ways we do this is by empowerment through education. This podcast is where we get to listen to personal experiences of those who have been affected by mental illness, the pain, the struggle to get better, and today, by the grace of God, have emerged with a message of hope and healing. My name is Moshe Khanen. I am a grateful addict in recovery, and I am a certified life and addiction recovery coach. I'm here to encourage vulnerability and allow for hope to emerge from the internal journeys we share. Please join me, hear the stories of these heroes, and know that you are not alone. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Neshamas podcast. Today, we have a guest, a good friend named Fredo Levin. And um, over here, we want to, we hope to talk today about uh, Fredo's story of growing up as a foster child and going through life, struggling to feel enough, searching to f- and finding a sense of belonging. Um, and today, living a healthy, balanced life while being a single mom and a business owner and a friend. So welcome, Fredel, to the podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Um, can you tell anybody who's listening who may not know you today? Because uh, uh, Fredel is a business owner of uh, Mimulo's Flower Shop, and um, you may see her on Instagram or on any other social media platforms. But if you do hear these parts of Fredel's stories... I believe that it will give you um, a better understanding of what others are dealing with, as well as if you may be dealing with something that she's been through, here's a sense of you're not alone, as well as some direction you can learn from Fredel's story of how you can also live a healthy, balanced, a healthy, emotionally balanced life. So Fredel, can you tell us a little bit about uh, childhood, being a foster child, how that started, and what was your first experience that you can remember in that? I grew up upstate. I was born upstate on a farm where my father was the mashkiach. And at two years old, I was found by a neighbor walking on the highway that was down the hill from our house. And at that point, I was put into the foster care system, but in the home of a friend of my parents. Uh, I was there till I was four. And that's where I was potty trained and that's where I was, you know, taught how to get dressed and numbers and all those kinds of things. I don't remember any of it. And my earliest childhood memories is dysfunctional. I remember my brothers who were born like three and six years after me riding their bikes on Shabbos on the street and how anxious it made me feel. I remember um, being in the house and it was messy and feeling so uncomfortable. I remember so many dysfunctional moments and that's what the 
bulk of my memory of a, of me as a child is uh, when I was eight years old, we went to the bungalow colony. My brothers were out of control and I had enough. When we got back from the bungalow colony, my suitcase was already still packed. I took it and my Shabbos coat, plaid, green and black Shabbos coat with a brooch on it. And I walked back to my foster family's house. They lived, I don't know, four or five blocks away. And I just went there, showed up on the doorstep, and I never went back. Incredible. Can you tell me a little bit, just because I just don't know, when you say your older brothers, you're talking about from your biological parents? Yes. So I'm, I have two biological brothers who are both younger than me. Mm-hmm. And um, they were born, I guess, while I was away slash when I got back. I was in foster care from two to four. And then I was there from in my biological parents' house from four to eight. And it was... You know, and I walked away at that point. They were not my family anymore. And I had as much contact with them as I was mandated to. I was in the foster care system. I had to go to a visitation once a week. What was that like? It was excruciatingly uncomfortable. I didn't want to relate to these people. They were not part of my story anymore. It was almost like I divorced them. Like I just walked away because... It was too uncomfortable. Are there any conclusions that you made about yourself based on that experience? Absolutely. I knew at that time that I could change things and that the power of my will was very strong. It also made me think that I knew everything, which both of them came into play later on in both good and not so good ways. And it kind of progressed from there. Like at that time, I knew that I could take care of myself. So after after that, I was, you know, a foster kid in this home where they were so good to me and gracious and welcoming. But I still wasn't theirs. I was a foster kid. And you I saw was, yourself as a foster kid? or I think that I didn't for the most part because I willed myself not to. And then there were reminders that were extremely painful. Mm. It was the times that I felt like I didn't belong or that I was reminded that I didn't belong. Maybe not even, you know, most likely not overtly. It wasn't intentional, but I understood the message. Um, and not because they didn't love me. They, they did in their way. They love me and they still do. And I know that. Um, but I, but I wasn't, I wasn't one of them in all the ways. So it became very imperative that I find a way to belong and be normal, quote unquote, you know, like that presenting as normally as possible was extremely important to me. When I saw my biological parents on the street, I would cross, didn't want to have contact with them. When I was given a choice at 14, if I wanted to continue visitation, I chose not to continue. I wanted nothing to do with that part of myself. And and that's 
that's what I was allowed to do. What role did school have in that, in any of that process? Like, what was school like? School was interesting because I remember as a as a younger kid, like in first and maybe second, third grade, I remember the feeling when I was with my biological parents of being like almost in hiding in school, trying to be more normal. And then as I got older, feeling like this is a place where I could be this version of myself because I was coming up with these, I guess, parts of myself that I was able to present in this way, in this place. I think we all do that. We all have that like home self that fights with our parents. And then we have that friend self that's understanding and caring as a kid. Like those are things that we do. But for me, it was like inside the house and outside the house. And when I was in, when, when I left and I was permanent, permanently in foster care, I didn't know that it was permanently. It was just like, it was something that never actually officially happened to my end. It was just like showed up there. I don't know how long this is going to go on for, but here I am. So this, the school was almost like a reprieve. Like I know I'll always go to school. And I, I think that I found comfort in that. Are there any examples that you can share with us that are how you expressed trying to be good enough or to fit in? I can't think of concrete examples because I think it was a lifestyle. Mm-hmm. I had great friends in elementary school who I love dearly. And they had that normal family, both parents, everyone would yell at home or hang out. or And I wanted to be with them. I wanted to see it. I wanted to learn it. I didn't recognize it as that at the time, but I love to be around a regular house. Didn't matter if it was uncomfortable to me. That was part of it. Mm. The fact that they could feel strong enough and secure enough to fight with their parents was monumental. I never had that feeling. I was, you know, I was a temporary, I was, I didn't have my own bed for a long time. I didn't have a place and they did and I wanted to see it. I wanted to know what it felt like as much as I could. Um, so I think that that's a part that I could really pinpoint that felt in that way. But there, you know, it comes with all the things like the the kids that want to fit in and that wear their uniform the same way everybody else does because they want to conform or they want to be like everyone else. When you don't have a place at home, it means so much more. Presenting normally means so much more being successful on the level that the community and school and friends understand as successful was so important. And it led to me making decisions that I wouldn't necessarily have done if I had more sense of self and belonging and ownership and security. It's almost, I'm envisioning you showing up to school with a backpack and another whole other backpack. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. You know, everybody else just comes with a backpack and you're coming right. with like this whole other I think it was kind of my only backpack. You know, school was much less significant 
and the education was less than my friends and fitting in and being popular and being a part of things and having a great time. I had a great time in school. I loved being in school. I loved being in camp. Going away for sleepaway camp was the highlight of my life. I lived from summer to summer. Summer camp was the great equalizer. That was the place where we were all without our parents. And we all had this experience of being away and being in this you know, we all the same bunk beds. And so my 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 blankets were a little different than yours, but everyone's was a little bit different. Mm. That's where I thrived. I found, you know, some of my closest friends in camp and I lived for it. It was all everything. Friends and and experiences and being together with other people and feeling like I was a part of it and I belonged. That was crucial. In that environment, in school or in camp, was there anything that somebody did that contributed to that comfort and that sense of belonging? I don't know if it was specific. I remember the specific... Okay, let me back it up. I remember the efforts that people had made when I was in first grade to make me feel like I fit in or make, made me feel normal. That made me feel more not normal. But... When I felt the energy and the welcome and the acceptance of my friends, as I got older, just on a really basic, simple level, and I always felt welcome in their homes, or I was kicked out of their homes because their parents are like, you have to go home. It's time to go to sleep. Everyone's going to sleep now. That felt so normal to me, and that felt accepting to be treated like a regular kid, not like a kid that needs extra attention or extra help or... um something that was, you know, special because I was different. I didn't want to feel different. Because that only fueled the belief that I'm not good enough and I don't fit in. Yeah. Yeah, I guess. Um, how long did that go by? Like the idea of school being like that and camp being like that? Like, did it go through teenage years? Well... I don't know if it was as poignant as when I was younger and I needed it so much more. At that point, it just became my reality. And then when I was in 11th grade, I went away for school. And so we were all in the dorm and it was just, you know, it was almost like a permanent reality that this is where I am. And and there were things that definitely encouraged me to feel that way. So I guess it went through all the way. Yeah. I still feel a deep sense of belonging and comfort and family within my friends and my friends' families, the people that I committed to love on my own from such a young age. Even if I'm not in touch with them now, they're still that part of me that was accepted and loved. And and when I see them on the street, I'm so excited to see them because it's that part of me that belonged. I hope they hear this. <laughs> me too. <laughs> I should probably call them and tell them. Yeah. Um, what do you think you can speak to a foster parent that would be what really helped you in those years? Mm. Or even a community member that acknowledges and knows that a kid is a foster kid. 
I think that the same thing that other kids need, foster kids need, like love and boundaries. And I think that for me, I can't say so much would help me. I would have to think about that more. But I think that what would have helped me were boundaries and not being able to get away with everything that I got away with. Mm. That could have, because boundaries make people feel safe. And I didn't feel like that. I didn't feel rooted or grounded. Whatever I wanted, I was somehow, you know, I, I didn't get away with everything, but but that is, you know, making a kid feel like you pat them on the back and, you know, you want to make them feel good. It's not necessarily what they need. They need love, but love looks many different ways. Okay. Um. Are you comfortable moving to the next yeah, sure. stage of life? So late teens, early 20s, what was that like? I was looking for belonging. I was looking for roots. What do you mean by roots? To feel grounded? I, th- I think it was to feel grounded, but that was the word that I that I latched onto at that like at an early time where I wanted to feel like there was a place that I was deeply embedded. It was this wish that no matter what, there was a place where I could always come back to. And it didn't feel like that within certain areas of my life because as I got older, I challenged the standards and I challenged the you know, the limits of people's acceptance. Mm. And so as I challenged it and as I was repulsed or pushed away, I felt less and less like I was a valuable part of something because if all it takes is me asserting myself and my true self and showing you my true self or sharing it for you to push me away, then what is that worth especially because it was with people that I trusted and that I thought should love me regardless. It's like a pursuit of finding authentic acceptance and I'll push you and challenge you so that you can still accept me and then I'll know. Yeah. The deeper the acceptance, the deeper the roots. Right. Yeah, that was definitely a part of it. And I think that it was important for me to do it just because it also allowed me to find more of myself. It wasn't that I was only trying to push them. I was pushing them because I was trying to find myself. I was trying to find my voice and I was trying to find the place that I could feel comfortable within myself. And I think that for a kid that tried to fit in for so long, I repressed that need because fitting in was so much more important than being myself. So when I you know, I went along with whatever it was expected of me for so long that when I finally pushed it away, it was it was just this like hands up and who are you and and you don't belong here if you're if that's who you are. Which that was, you know, my late teens and early twenties. And it was a painful time and I was looking for something somewhere to belong, someone to belong to, some someone who would accept me and and grow with me. And, you know, I met different people and I found 
I found this element of like limitation. Like I was okay up to a certain point, but after that I was not. Um, you know, within romantic relationships and within friendships, there was this certain barrier that I felt that I couldn't overcome, that it wasn't enough to to make someone happy or to be in a fulfilled relationship or to be accepted. And I was finding that at home and I was finding that within, you know, my social circles. And when I met my then husband, I felt that he was kind of on that same level of looking for acceptance that we could accept each other. And so I knew that he had things that were not things that I wanted for myself, but I was willing to put that aside because he had these other things and I'm so broken. And if he's willing to accept me, how could I not be willing to accept him? I don't know that I'll ever get any more than that. I don't know that I deserve any more than that. I don't know if I'm enough to get more than that. And I don't even know if I thought about that so intuitively. I think to me it was, there's a list of things that I want and he checks off those things on the list and those other things that don't fit on my list and that are not there. Who am I to say no to this opportunity? Because this is what the best I'll ever get. What did you do when you recognized the conflict in between who you're acting like and who you are? I think I tested the waters for myself. Um, it was a combination of recognizing my strengths and recognizing what my opportunities are. I didn't have family to fall back on. I didn't have resources except for my own wits that I could see at the time. And I didn't have who to turn to even. Maybe I did have who to turn to. I just didn't feel like I could turn to them. Mm. I'm learning a lot about that now. And I'm many years past. <laughs> so it became it became this this testing the waters of who I am. How does this feel for me? What do I connect to? And it was between me and myself and my friends and God and ultimately my husband. Who am I within this? What do I deserve? What is okay for me to accept and what is not? And it took many years for me to really go through that process. Mm -hmm. You mentioned God. Mm. <laughs> so what'd you say to him as a kid, as a teenager, as an adult? It's a good question. I've been thinking about that a lot. In the beginning, I thought God didn't care. And then I thought, and then I thought, why did God do this to me? What did I do to deserve this kind of life? Mm. What did I do wrong? Was it me? Was it my neshama in another time and place? What is wrong with me that I was given this these challenges that I just didn't feel? It was it was not fear. I was I at the time I was so connected to this idea of if I work hard, I will succeed. If I do this mitzvah, you'll do this for me. 
If I give tzedakah, you'll make me rich. If I do, if I'm sneeze, you'll give me a good marriage. If I cover my hair, I'll be a good, you know, in a good relationship. And it was so much of a barter system. And I, and I couldn't understand. I was doing everything. I was doing everything that was asked of me to the best that I could. And if God gave you this, then what did I do? I must have done something wrong. Yeah, what can I do more? I struggled and I strived and I, I, I threw myself into fixing myself in whatever way I could and trying so hard, not, not giving myself the option of failure. Failure was not an option because if I only tried harder or if I only did something else, something better, something different, I just have to find that thing, I would figure this out and succeed. Right. So just being a kid. And just being human is just not an option. Right. No. Oh, no. <laughs> no. So what did I tell God? I, I told God it's not fair at that point. What did I do wrong? What did my children do wrong? What did they do to deserve this kind of life? What did I do wrong to bring them in to this kind of life? How could I do that to them? How could God do that to them? I would look at their faces. They're so innocent. What did they do wrong? And it was, I I was the victim. God, how did you do this to me? I am this victim of this strong or uncaring, unfaithful, neglectful God. That is how I felt. I felt neglected and ignored. I would go to the aisle and I would daven and I would cry. I would beg, I would promise. And it was just more of the same. What was I getting from this God that told me, do X, Y, and Z, you'll get A, B, and C. It wasn't working. And once I, once I recognized that I wasn't in control and it wasn't what I was doing, but it was beyond me and it was not understandable and it was not something that I could ever have any real influence over. I can't control God and I can't control circumstances and I can't control the choice that my neshama made to come into this world, in this body, in this situation, as much as I can't control my children's neshama's choice. You know, this is this is beyond my control. Once I was able to recognize that, now I tell God, it's in your hands. You're my partner here. You're making it sound so simple, Friedel. It came with so much pain. <laughs> it took so many years. I, I was guided to Al-Anon at one of the hardest points. And, you know, it took so much time for the messages to sink in that I'm not in control and that there is a power that runs this world that is not, it's not me. I'm not in control. I can't change anything but myself. And working through it on that level with the people that supported that idea and that were true testaments to the belief of it it was able to get me to a place where Hasidus and religion just didn't feel like it could. There was too much invested in that. There was too much um, pain and emotion in that 
in that perspective because it came with all of those expectations. Religion comes with religious people and their parameters of acceptance and their parameters of judgment. And religion, to me, became about the people. And I just want to be close to God. I want to do things that make me feel closer to God and the God as I understand it. And my vision of God changed as my story changed and as I grew and as I was able to open myself up to this idea that God is not punishing me for something that I've done. This is not, this is not something that I could have controlled. I can look at God, I could look at the, the universe and the sky and say, God, you're my mother you're my father, you're my support, you're my partner, and I trust you. And we'll get through this together, and we're going to have uncomfortable conversations, God and I. We're gonna, I'm going to challenge you, but I know that no matter how much I challenge you, you're going to love me. And that is what allowed me to come to this place where I'm open to what is in store, to what happens next, to not feeling like I'm being punished and being victimized. I'm not a victim. I'm not. I'm just a part of a story. And my story is just like the next person. I don't know what kind of pain the next person is going through. Nobody has a perfect life. Everyone has a level of pain. And by trusting God and by opening myself up to the fact that I'll never, I'll never know. I'll, I'll just not know. And that's okay. That's how I'm able to say that. Well, the it seems like you covered like everything just now. <laughs> so you're saying we're done? No, I'm saying um, all of a sudden you're enough because you have a God that loves you unconditionally. All of a sudden you fit in. All of a sudden there's a reason why everything happened. You know how how did that affect? Or can you tell me a little bit about the actions you took to justify the life that you were given? I don't know if I could justify Damn. it. There's no justification. I don't so think. what is it? How do you reconcile that? You had that issue and that lack of acceptance for so many years. Well, it's not, I don't know that it's gone forever or for all the way because to accept the pain of myself is one thing, but to look around and see people in pain and the way that they're suffering, I, it's hard for me to accept that on their behalf. When I, mm -hmm. when I cry for the pain, I cry for other people's pain mm -hmm. because to see that, I can't accept that that's happening for them. Mm -hmm. Like that's their, that's, that's their story to tell. For me, I can only... <sighs> I can only just let let it be, you know, a step outside of myself. How did this change in your relationship with God uh, affect your relationship with your kids and how you see them? I think that allowing myself to be accepted by God as I am exactly today in this moment, regardless of how I might change and struggle and that I might be in a different frame of mind in another minute. 
and know that I'll still be accepted then allows me to also look at my children and accept that their character is their own. And they were born with it just like they were born with their eyes. And when I look at them and I'm frustrated, I try to just think of what I want God to think of for me. I want God to think of me as the, as God's child to only have the best. So when I look at my kids and I'm being challenged in my head, I'm just thinking, I only want the best for you. I only want the best for you. How can I relate to you so that we can get through this? Because that's what I want for you. I don't want to be right. I don't want to be in charge. I just want you to have the thing that you need. And if what you need is for me to be in charge, then that's what I want to give you. If you need a boundary and you need me to hold you safe within that boundary, then that's what I need to give you right now because I only want the best for you. Is there any way that you implement this concept of giving your kids this sense of roots and and always having a place? Are there things that you do today to build that for your kids? I think I maybe do it too much. <laughs> you know how we always like veer extremely off. I think my kids have a very strong sense of self and and security with me where they know that they'll, you know, I'll always take care of them because I also tell it to them. Like you could fight with me now. I'm your mother forever. I will love you always. And and I'm always going to be here. I'm always going to take care of you. And I tell them, you know, when they're little, like, you'll always be my baby. doesn't matter how big you get. And when I look at my 12-year-old, who will be 13 next week, and I, and I talk to him, I tell him, same thing. It's like, you could get as big as you want, but you'll always be my child. I'll always be your mother. So you'll always respect me, and I will always love you. And we'll have a great relationship. I'm not your friend. I'm not someone that you can grow out of. I'm someone that's going to be with you forever. So... I think it comes out differently in different ways, but it goes back to the original thing that we talked about, love and boundaries. And I really work hard on myself to like implement them from a place of safety and health, not from a place of power and control. Wow. Or a loss of control and just feeding um, chaos. Right. Yeah. yeah. I'm a part of it. I'm a part of it. And I, and I struggle with it. It doesn't come easy for me. I'm triggered by the sense of challenge and the sense of, you know, not being good enough or not knowing what to do because I never had this experience. I never lived with siblings like this that fought. I never lived with a mother who was my own mother who set boundaries in this way and loved me. I never had unconditional love that I felt in this way. So I always feel like this imposter almost like, I'm making this up as I go along. <laughs> like I'm still looking to find validation and, and guidance and books and friends and, and mentors. And so I struggle with that. And it's hard for me because I want them to just accept it where their safety isn't challenging me. I read a line, I think, by Rabbi Tversky in a book about children with addiction that said something to the effect of, if your child is challenging you, it means that they're safe. Mm -hmm. And I remind myself of that all the time. I don't know if I finished the book. I think I just needed to see that. And it was monumental for me at the time. It meant that my children challenging me wasn't 
a sense of my failure. It was a sense of my success. And I went to therapy for many years. I'm still in therapy. And my therapist has to tell me that sometimes I forget. And she reminds me that these things are normal. And you might not be familiar with it, but it doesn't make it not normal. It's okay. What the, your current therapist, is it somebody that you've been seeing for a long time? I've been seeing her for about a year. Okay. Can you speak to somebody who's never been to therapy? They feel like they need help and they're either nervous, too scared, or not sure if the person's going to understand them. Was it your, like, do you have any experience in being hesitant to get that type of help and then being willing to let somebody in? I think that before I started therapy, I thought that my mindset at the time was that I've overcome all this by myself. I can overcome anything by myself. And it took me, you know, going through this crisis of not knowing what to do about my marriage and not knowing how to make that decision, not being able to come to a decision to realize that I need someone from outside of myself to guide me so that at least I feel like I have a safe place to let the burden down for a little bit because I couldn't let it down on my friends. I wasn't fair to them. And and I, I didn't feel like I could because I was deeply committed to my relationship and to the respect of my husband and my marriage. I didn't want to share the things that made me uncomfortable because I didn't want my friends to look at my husband and know about these things. It was important to me that my friends respected my relationship and my husband. And maybe it was also my ego telling me that it's nobody's business, what my problems are, and I need to present this you know, face of overcoming everything by myself without having, you know. High school all over again. Yeah, kind of, but to myself. Mm -hmm. So when I finally recognized that something had to change and I wasn't able to change it for myself, that's when it was the only thing that I could think of because it was the only thing that I knew of. I didn't, I didn't realize that I needed more help. I thought I just needed help making this decision. Am I staying in or am I leaving? And I would set myself um, like timelines and 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 due dates. Like I'm going to decide by my birthday in two months. So when I went to therapy, I thought I'm going to go to therapy for two months because then I'm going to decide. I just need help making the decision. I didn't even know how much help I needed at the time. And that's what got me to finally just go. And once I went and I tried it out and I had one therapist for a while and then it wasn't working out and I felt comfortable at that point and confident to say, you're really nice and I really enjoy talking to you. It's not working for me anymore. I'm going to try somebody new because at the end of the day, this was all for me. So what is the thing that I need now? I need to find a new therapist. I need to find a therapist that takes my insurance. What's the best therapist I could find? that takes my insurance. And that was how I got to my next therapist and my next therapist. Like, Is there a process of trying out a few therapists until you found the person you wanted? Well, I think that I'll probably, as I grow, I'll need different people and that I'm okay with. But yeah, I went to a therapist to help me with my marriage. And when I felt that she wasn't supporting me fixing my marriage and she was very obviously thought I should leave my husband, 
I said, you're not helping me do what I want. Therapy is for me. And what I want is to fix my marriage and to fix myself. So then I went to my next therapist. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it kept on, I kind of saw that when what I needed wasn't being filled, then I needed to find somebody new. Because at the end of the day, it's not an emotional relationship. This is something that's specifically for me. And so I was able to be selfish in that way and not feel guilty or not feel ashamed to tell someone, you're not helping me right now. I need to find someone to help me. I know I've, I've talked to many people who didn't have the courage to speak to their therapist and tell them their problems that they're having with the therapy. Mm. Can you just say a little bit more specific of that was there a process of like being doubtful and then saying something or doing something that gave you the courage to tell your therapist that? I think that for me, thinking about what I wanted to accomplish allowed me to see if it was working or not. Yeah. I think a lot of times people fall into this feeling of friendship and camaraderie and this is the place where I let everything down. But for me, it was always very goal-oriented. I wanted to accomplish something. And so when I saw that my goal wasn't being it, my goal wasn't either being accomplished or focused on the way that I wanted it to. That's what allowed me to have that conversation mm -hmm. because I knew what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. I'm not here for fun. It takes time and effort. It was a lot of money. You know, when I when I was paying cash out of pocket, it was like I didn't have money for it. I was doing it literally to save my life. And if it's not working, you're not saving my life the way I feel like I need it right now. What choice do I have? This is what I want to accomplish. So having a goal definitely gave me the courage to stand up for that goal. It's really, really powerful. It's one of the most common things I end up talking about in a conversation with somebody who's looking for a therapist or reevaluating their therapy. If everything goes successful, what happens as a result of this relationship? Right. right. Bring that and up. Bring that up. Ask your therapist, is this something you can help me with? And mm -hmm. either you're helping me or you're not. Yeah, because at the end of the day, it's a transaction. So the same way in business or in a purchase, if it doesn't fill your need, you don't need it. Mm -hmm. And the truth is, I think that I learned a lot about that just from that experience. Because for a long time, I was willing to accept whatever I was given because I didn't know that I could have anything else. Even within gifts within family, within experiences. I said yes to everything because I didn't know that I would ever get anything else ever again. Mm -hmm. So having the experience of bringing myself somewhere to accomplish something and then seeing that it's not working and then saying no to it was huge for me because I was just that person that would make do with anything. Mm -hmm. I can make anything work. I am so creative and so strong and so so capable that I can make anything work, but I don't have to. And I don't want to anymore. I want it to be right. I want to find the connection with a friend or a person or a therapist or a vendor, even in business. If it doesn't, if it's not right, then I don't have to do it. If you're not the right client for me, we don't have to work together. It doesn't have to happen because I have an infinite loving God who will give me what I need. Mm. I'm connecting deeply to that concept of, I don't have to. Um, I think of people 
like myself at a time where the thought of getting high, drugs, drink, whatever it is, came into my mind and I had to have it. I don't have to have it, right? And I just thought that was very powerful. I'm not sure if that's something that you struggled with, but it sounds like that was something that through the process you were able to get to. I definitely felt that way. The space in between, like uh, Viktor Frankl says, the space in between stimulus and response. Right. You know, oh, I have this customer. Oh, I have to. No, there's a space where I could decide, no, this is an evaluation can happen and I don't have to have it. It's interesting that you say that because I never thought of it as a compulsion so much as like just an opportunist. And I looked at it in this way that like, yeah, I'll try anything. I'm willing to do whatever is offered. Um, but yeah, it's it comes from a place where I'm not in control. And I'm letting myself get pushed around by something that I think that I want, but do I need it? Do I have the critical thinking and the strength to follow through on saying yes or saying no from a place where it's strong and healthy? I guess there is a part of me that maybe I'm not, I don't suffer from addiction in the classical way, but I was definitely addicted to not missing out on anything. You know, FOMO is cliche, but it's a real thing. I didn't want to miss out on anything. I wanted to have all the things and try everything. Did it come from a place of, this is all I'm going to get, and if I don't take this, I might not get another chance. I might not ever. For sure. Because what is in front of me is all I'm going to get. A hundred percent. more. When it came to finding a husband, when it came to jobs, and when it came to even within my business growth, it was the beginning few years of our of our business was so much of listening to what the clients want. And because the client came to us, we thought God brought them to us. We have to accept it. R- not realizing that God brought it to us to give us the ability to choose because we could choose. And when, when we learn that in personal life and in business and in even in growth, you get to choose. It makes a huge difference. And, and the way that I, that I feel like I apply that in a day-to-day way is my my mantra when I'm faced with that kind of thing is just, I need to think about it. I need to think about it, which gives me space and gives you space and I can step away and I could think, is this something that is going to be good for me? I could want it. I could want to go party and I could want to go and stay up late and I could want to go and try this new experience and I could want to have, I don't know, there's so many things that I could want, but what is it that is going to help me accomplish my goal of being that person that I want to be? Or what is going to accomplish the goal of being the business and the business woman and the part of the community that I want to be? And how do I want to, how do I want to stand on my feet and present myself? That is my choice. Do I want to be that person that, you know, is willing to go along with whatever everybody else wants? Or am I going to think about it, take that moment and decide for myself what's right? It's amazing. I want to think about it means I matter. I am the most important person in my life. I have the right to make a decision. I have the right to choose. I have the right to have the best life. Yeah. It's very powerful. It's... It's like monumental for me. We got to wrap up soon, but I wanted to know, we just came or we're still in this pandemic of COVID and your business, 
got hit hard. How did having a program and a support system play a role in this process? It's interesting the way you ask the question because as soon as the pandemic hit, everything shut down, including meetings. So while I was religiously going to Al-Anon meetings weekly, it changed the structure of my week because that wasn't happening anymore. And where's my program if I'm not in a meeting? So it took me a little bit of time to find the place that the program was inside of myself. Wow. Because going to a meeting was hearing what everybody else had to say and learning from them. But if I wasn't going to be in a meeting, I had to really talk to myself. And so for me, it meant a few different things. It meant reaching back into just the serenity prayer, feeling the trust and commitment to God, and that regardless, there is a plan and there is safety in the world because I believe that there's a God that runs the world. And then it was in reading and making a meeting for myself within myself, taking time to sit down and read a page that you know, could speak to what I'm dealing with or speak to whatever is up on the day, you know. And more recently was reconnecting with a sponsor and really working on just step one, just I am powerless, just really studying my powerlessness, focusing on what am I willing to give to God? What can I put in God's hands that I cannot control? And by thinking about that every day and throughout the day and telling myself, I'm going to give this to God, that's program for me. That's recovery because I am not in control. And I mean, we're all suffering with that same exact, not suffering, we're all working through that concept of we can set ourselves up an entire life and then God has a plan and we are going to just be along for the ride because Corona could hit and everything that you had lined up could just fall in pieces on the floor, but you're still standing there. Who are you? It sounds like the true test of what a program and a support system can do happened now and it it passed the test, you know, even in the craziest of times like today you were able to, or I would love to hear from you, like what do you feel like it allowed you to do once you stopped in regular days and recognized that I cannot continue to function while trying to hold on to things that are not in my control. I have to stop. I need to read. I need to pray. I need to focus on myself so that I can be a better person of who I am. So how did that play out? I think it was recognizing that I needed something. I think that for for myself personally, when I'm in this place that I feel out of control and I feel paralyzed or overwhelmed, it's it's hard to see or it was hard for me to see that I need to step out of it in order to be able to let it pass. Mm-hmm. Whereas until I 
found this place in myself, I would just really continue to be overwhelmed and <laughs> just like freak out or or blame God in my head and be angry and be angry about the situation. And I think that having this knowledge and safety that I could step out and focus on something that will help me and I know what's going to help me was allowed me to just say, okay, guys, I'm taking a break. I'm going to lock my door. I'm going to lock this door and that door and I'm going to sit for five minutes quietly and I'm going to think about what I can do now to center myself. How can I get back to that place? And knowing that there was this framework that I could refer to was extremely helpful. And different people find it in different places. You know, people turn to the Tanya or Hayam Yayim, and people turn to God in so many different ways. But for me, this is what is working for me right now. What do you look like when you walk out of that room? I think I probably just look less tense, like smooth almost. It's just that letting go of the, you know, I tend to hold all of that burden on my shoulders and my shoulders are so tense and my neck has been hurting me for years. Like I hold it. When when you give it over to God and you let go, it's like, okay, you could breathe a little deeper. You could, you know, unscrunch your face. It's just a, you know, a, a general relaxation of of self. It's amazing. And I, I think what's so beautiful is what an example you set for your kids, you know, and who you show up as when you're a mother. It's okay to be really intense and it's okay to take time for yourself. And when you do, this is what it looks like. And I think that's beautiful. I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> who knows? Is there any, um, any last things you'd like to share? I think the only parting message that I would want to impart or share would be that at the end of the day, belonging to yourself is the most meaningful. I think that's what I needed to learn the most, that I belong to myself and my strength and my center is inside of me. It's in my soul and looking for it in valid and looking for validation in other people and in community and in you know other other places is not where you're going to find it it's not where i found it only brought me more pain and anger and abandonment issues you know looking for it elsewhere just made it harder for me to find it within myself but finding it within myself is what changed the game for me right that's beautiful. Thank you so much. Thank you. Really appreciate you being here. And um, I look forward for you to see the feedback of what such a powerful message can be. I hope that whoever needs to hear it will hear it and know that their strength is just there for the taking. Beautiful. And um, Fredel could be found on social media. I think an easy way to find if you just look up Mimulo on Instagram if you want to get in touch or send 
brittle uh, compliment or um, <laughs> yeah. if there's something that you identified with that you think uh, you can learn from Fredel's experience, you can reach it there. Is it okay? Absolutely. Just Please. Yeah. Reach out. I'm here. I'm always happy to chat and share and also listen. Also here for that. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. Please share your feedback by emailing us at podcast at neshamas.org. We hope you'll be back for the next episode of the Neshamas podcast. This is Moshe Khanen wishing you a healthy and a meaningful day.